morning, I want to uh, look at the Church of Jerusalem once again. Uh, we'll look at part two in the study of the Church of Jerusalem. And uh, last week, if you remember, we considered um, how the Church of Jerusalem started, who its original charter members were. It consisted of the 120 that are mentioned there in, in uh, uh, Acts 1. Um, and it grew immediately upon the day of Pentecost. It grew uh, to be number in the thousands. And if we consider all of the, the challenges that it would have taken to teach and um, worship and all the logistics, think about that, the rapid growth. But what we see has happened down through history and we see that happened in the, in the early church is when the Holy Spirit works, things can happen in mighty ways in a very quick in a very quick fashion, and it's happened throughout history, and um, they went from 130, or 120, to after the day of Pentecost, the day in which the church was empowered by the Holy Ghost, it went to 3,120 in one day, and then it says, and daily the Lord added to the church such as should be saved, daily he was adding to the church. We know that the, it says that they met. It's an interesting thought that came to me this week. It says, and they met daily in the temple and going from house to house. And when we think about the fact that the Lord saves through the preaching of His Word, and then it says the Lord added daily to the church such as should be saved. He added to the church daily such as should be saved in part because they were daily preaching to people who needed to be saved. And so there's kind of a practical application to us that if we desire to see more people saved, then we need to be preaching the word with more frequency. If the Lord was to add to Calvary Independent Baptist Church daily, such as should be saved. Now we know that people can hear the gospel message today and be saved on Tuesday while they're at work. Okay, we know that that's the case, but for a work to grow rapidly, there has to be a lot of work being done on a daily basis. And so there's a practical application there. The key to the growth of the church, of course, that we saw was the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus had told them to go to Jerusalem and wait. Don't do anything until you receive power from the Holy Spirit. We saw that while they were waiting, they were in prayer. They were constantly in prayer. And um, last week then, after the church uh, grew, we considered their worship and so forth. Um, One of the things that I want to point out before we get into the lesson today, today we'll consider the Church of Jerusalem as it was a persecuted church and then as it was a missionary church. But as we consider um, the worship of the church in Jerusalem, and what we could call an awakening. We have to realize that most of the people that were saved and added to the church, what nationality, what persuasion were the people of the church of Jerusalem? One of you guys tell me. Jewish, Israelites. They were Jewish, they were Israelites. And most of them were religious. Right? Um, When the preaching went on on the day of Pentecost, the whole reason that they would have been there to be 
hearing was because they were religious people who were in the vicinity of the temple, right? They were there for a reason. And they were people who had come from all over the Roman Empire. And they had come there. They were religious people. These would have also been people who, like Paul, when he was saved, hated Jesus Christ. Peter tells them. This says they realized. We, can't, we crucified him. What should, they said, what must we do? Because they realized they had crucified the Lord Jesus. The Jews had crucified him. The first church, this mighty church, this powerful church, was made up of previous God-haters. People who hated Jesus Christ, who had no problem with the fact that Jesus was crucified and that he died in the fashion that he died. Many of these people perhaps had even observed him dying on the cross. As we look later in the church of Jerusalem, we see that there were even priests, former priests, former Pharisees. Uh, Paul was saved, we know, but um, as we'll look at later in our lesson today, there were people who had come into the church and some of the former Pharisees that were in the church were preaching that it was necessary for you to be circumcised in order to be saved. So we literally had people who hated Jesus Christ. And this, this is what made up the early church. And so as we go on and we consider um, the uh, persecution, let's turn to Acts chapter 4. It didn't take very long for persecution to arise. Jesus had told his disciples during his earthly ministry, they hate me, they're going to hate you. Or they're going to hate you because they hate me. He told them that you would be persecuted. And so, um, in Acts chapter 4, in verse 7, we begin to see uh, some of this. And it says... um, In verse 5, And it came to pass on the morrow that the rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked him, By what power or by by what name have you done this? Then Peter got up and he preached, preached unto them. And notice the response of his preaching over in Acts 5. In Acts 5 and verse 28, Um, they said, um, did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles uh, answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And in other, in other places, it, it speaks of the fact that they had, um, they were beaten and the apostles in the early church, as they would be persecuted, they rejoiced and praised God. Um, when we uh, consider the secular rulers, also besides the priests, um, and the religious rulers of the Jews, um, persecuted the church. Turn over to Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. In Acts 12... It says, now about the time Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now this was James, the son of Zebedee. 
Um, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And he says, it says, because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter, therefore, was kept in the prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly, and his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. And he did, and so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garments about thee, and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and wist not it was true, which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. When they were past the first and second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through the street, or through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel, and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod, and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where there were many gathered together praying. And we were, most of us are familiar with the, the rest of the story, how the church was praying for Peter, and when it was told them that Peter's at the door, they didn't believe because that's a ridiculous concept. We know that Peter's in jail. And it just kind of shows us how we are in our human nature, how we can pray for things not expecting God to do it. Uh, we do this all the time. And even in the early church, I, I just point this out because even in the early church, with all their wonderful things, they were not perfect. They had a lot of problems. And even with God doing mighty things, they still prayed without necessarily believing that it was going to come to pass. Yeah. Peter being released and standing in front of them was a ridiculous concept. And, uh, but indeed, he was there in front of him. And how many times over and over do we not underestimate what God can actually do? Mm. We pray because we know we're supposed to pray, but we underestimate. And even in the early church, they did that. But it was a persecuted church. They were persecuted by the religious rulers. They were persecuted by the secular rulers. Um, and then there was mob rule and hatred of Christ. Uh, turn over to Acts chapter 7 and verse 57. And when it comes to persecution that we might see in our day, I think that this might be the kind of persecution that we'll be facing. You know, in our country we have... In our laws, it allows for freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and so forth. But um, when enough of the world hate you, yep. uh, we saw what happened in 2001, how mob rule can begin to affect things, right? People would be sitting on the street minding their own business, trying to have dinner, and mobs would come up and disrupt things, right? Um, we saw um, there was more than one church in this country that was attacked during 2020. Uh, and there, this is the kind of thing that can end up happening in our day. But in Acts uh, chapter 7, in verse 57, um, it says, as Stephen was preaching, 
He's preaching to a large crowd. And it says, Then they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Now, yes, Saul was consenting unto his death. And yes, there were religious leaders. When you look at when, when, Saul, when Stephen started preaching, right? But it doesn't change the fact that this was mob mentality. This was people as a whole. There was no law and order here. There was no trial. And so they, there was enough people that with one mind, they hated Christ and the gospel enough that they literally charged him, drug him out of the city, and stoned him on the spot. And this kind of thing ended up happening to the missionaries who went through the Gentile world. Remember in Ephesus, the mob mentality, literally an entire amphitheater is filled. And the city is stirred up and they don't even know exactly why it's stirred up, but they're ready to kill people. And the people of God were the ones that were at the center of it. And the reason that the secular people, the religious leaders, and uh, secular rulers, uh, religious rulers, and then just the mobs in general general society is because when true Christianity is preached, when Christians' lives are changed, it it upends a society. It's disruptive. And uh, oh, and it doesn't go unnoticed. And so people hate the people of God. Notable people that were persecuted um, in uh, the church in Jerusalem would have been Stephen, James, and Peter. The persecution of Stephen was, was, had such an impact. And these things happened in such a short amount of time. Here, God is greatly blessing this church. God is moving in powerful and wonderful ways. And at the same time, people begin to lose their lives. And that has an impact on the people of God. It is, it's, a, it's a tough thing to digest. And, uh, oh, and it says uh, in verse, uh, chapter 8 and verse 1, right after what we just read about Stephen, it says, And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and hailing men and women, committing them uh, to prison. If you think about how the church in Jerusalem did a lot of their worship, it says he went into every house. I think he was going in and disrupting, disrupting services as well, disrupting Bible studies. And um, it wasn't necessarily he heard that there was this one Christian family over here. But I think he would hear, he would get wind that there's some Christians that are meeting over on 10th Street and such and such. And, you know, and the house would be full and they would go into houses and, and haul people away. Um, and we've seen that down through history. There would be underground churches and so forth. I was reading a, um, 
a book on the Russian evangelist William Fetler, and um, there was it was kind of like in the early church where thousands upon thousands of people were saved, and churches were overflowing. And when you consider their worship services, even, and I'll touch on this a little bit more in the worship service this morning, but their their worship services um, would start, let's say, it, in the middle of the day. They would go on for five, six, seven hours on Sunday, their worship services. And they would start with singing, and then testimonies, a lot of time of prayer, and then Fettler as a pastor would get up and he would preach a message that could go on for an over an hour and nobody cared. And then um, they would have more singing. And then another preacher would get up and he would preach. And that could go on for an hour. And then they would take a break and they would sing. And then they would have another preaching service. And they never went in Latvia and Russia and some of those churches in Poland and so forth just before World War II. When, whenever they had Sunday services, they didn't have a sign out front of their church that said, Sunday worship service, you know, 11 a.m. to noon. No. They would start their services. It's just, this is when our services start. And nobody ever knew when the services would stop. Because if the Lord was leading and the Lord was directing, they just kept going. And God was saving people by the thousands and thousands. And, and, you know, sometimes when we hear of things like that, we're like, yeah, I wonder how much of it was just hype. I wonder how much of it was emotionalism. Well, how many people that are saved just on a hype or on a whim just make a profession? Uh, how many of those people want to go to church every day? How many of those people show up on Sunday and just want to worship God and don't care? When, when worship is proper, you know, we're so stuck in our rut, and I'll get into this a little bit in the Sunday school lesson, but looking at the early church, and the church is in the Word of God, and then some church of the way things have been done down through history. When the Holy Spirit is at work, um, the women don't even bother to put a pot roast in the oven on Sunday, because it'll get burned. You don't know when you're going home. If you just go to the house of God to worship, with no strings attached, no, no preconceived idea about how this is going to go down, then you don't bother worrying about what we're going to do for Sunday afternoon dinner because we don't know how this is going to go. That's how churches have done things in the past. Now, those churches, those same churches, this is in the 1900s in Russia, Latvia, Poland, and all this region where God was doing these great works. Like the church in Jerusalem, there was this great revival, this great response, and then almost immediately at times, here came the persecution. And in, uh, I think it was in 1939, the Soviets moved into Latvia where this, these services would happen like this. And the guy who was then the pastor, um, he, he and his family, one night they showed, the, the Soviets showed up and they told them that you guys have an hour, I can't remember if it was an hour or a day, but you have an hour to pack, and you guys are going to Siberia. And they went to Siberia, and within two weeks, the pastor was dead. His sons ended up dying in the mines, working in the mines. And the women and their daughters, his wife and daughters, ended up working on um, communal farms. And 
thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, they died for Christ. Right on the heels of these great revivals and these great awakenings. And so this is the way Jesus said, they're going to hate you, they're going to persecute you. I think in America, we tend to think, we look for revival and we want revival. And we've been kind of spoiled in this country because... If we can turn this nation into a godly nation, and we have this idea that if there's great revival, then that will come with ease, that will come with freedom, that will come with all this. And that's kind of what we're used to, but the reality is, and God can bless and God has blessed in America. But so many times throughout history, over and over and over, there would be radical great awakenings and revival And because it upsets the society, because it disrupts the rulers and their agendas and what they want to do, because the Christians are not quiet when there's real revival, there ends up being very strong persecution to stop this way, as Paul hated that way, that way of life. And so this is what happened. Now, in the early church in Jerusalem, the persecution is actually what contributed to the scattering of the saints, as we read in uh, Acts 8, 1 through 4. It says oh, in verse 1, And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And in verse 4, it says, And they that were scattered about, what did they do? Did they tuck their tail and run and go into, go into seclusion and go off into the wilderness and, and live a survivalist life? That's what I would tend to, I think, okay, we need to get ready. If there's going to be great persecution, I'm going to, I'm going to have people in my network that I can, that I can, I'm going to, I'm going to rely on Darren for equipment and being able to, you know, we do what we need to do. Uh, I know that the kill guards have a dehydrator. So, you know, you know, we're, we're going to get all this food so we can go live off the grid. And we're going to have this network set up where we need to be able to survive and we need to be able to go way back up here in the mountains up by the Canadian border somewhere and oh, be able to survive as a church out in the mountains. Now, at times, that has happened down through history. The Waldenses survived for hundreds of years in the Alps of Europe, living in the mountains. But they didn't just go up there and hide out. If you study the history, the, the, the Waldenses were constantly coming back out of the mountains and going and spreading the gospel and literature and so forth. Um, and the church in Jerusalem, they were scattered But it says they went everywhere preaching the word. You can't go everywhere preaching the word if you're living like a hermit on a survivalist type lifestyle up in the mountains up by Canada. And so uh, no matter what ends up might happen in our country at some point, as things begin to go downhill, we have to remember no matter how it is that we might need to take care of our families and so forth, there's still going to need to be this desire, this built-in instinct that we must somehow still spread the gospel. Because that's the purpose of the church. And uh, the church in Jerusalem had a very short life. As we're considering the persecution. This is an interesting thing. We look at revivals and great awakenings that have happened down through history. And sometimes we go, eh, I don't know. That seems pretty crazy. I mean, how long did those churches really last? 
I've had conversations like this with multiple preachers. Pastor and I were talking about this recently also. We kind of go, eh, there's an asterisk nest to that. I don't know how real that was because we don't see those churches uh, that it necessarily lasted very long. And if the Lord was de- really in it, then wouldn't there have been church there in the, where there was a great awakening for 200 years? Well, how long, when do you tell me, how long did the church in Jerusalem exist for? The greatest church perhaps ever, where the Holy Spirit came down and marked his house of witness and dwelt people for the first time. How long did that church live, would you guess? 37 years. It only lived for about 37 years and was wiped off the face of the earth. Israel was, Jerusalem was flat out destroyed in AD 70. And so when you think about when the church started, and then you go until AD 70, the church in Jerusalem, the first church, it no longer exists. There was no church in Jerusalem at that point. Now, the Lord's church, which he started, is still here today. Right? The institution, the, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But that local church in that city only lasted 37 years. Isn't that an amazing thing? But God has an eternal purpose. This has been a repeating theme throughout history. Churches cease to exist sometimes, and sometimes it's not. They didn't last very long, and it wasn't through any fault of their own. Sometimes it's severe persecution. The long-term impact, though, whether it was the church in Jerusalem or churches around the world, the long-term impact can be felt for years and years and hundreds of years, thousands of years, in fact. And that's what we see with the church in Jerusalem. And so now let's segue into their missions. The Great Commission... Jesus had told the apostles, those who were in the church when it began there, or when it um, received power from the Holy Ghost there on the day of Pentecost, he had told them to go into all the world. And it was for the gospels for Jew and Gentile. And they were to go. The church is to be a going church. And so Philip goes to Samaria in Acts chapter 8. Just down from, it says in verse 4 where we were, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. And then it mentions one person in particular. It's like they went everywhere preaching the word. And here's an example of what that looked like. I, there would be, it would take the volumes, it would take a lot of writing to really account for early church history and exactly how things were done. But the word of God just gives us, here's one example in fact, if you could be reading this and it said, and they went everywhere preaching the word. And, and here's one example. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Now, Philip was a deacon in the church in Jerusalem. But it says that everyone was scattered, except the apostles, everyone was scattered. So that included the deacons. I mean, everybody was scattered. And so um, here we have in... He's an ordained elder. Um, perhaps he was one of the 70. I think, I think a lot of people forget about the 70, meaning the 70 during Jesus' ministry, right? We know about the apostles. And well, what about the prophets? What about the, the preachers that the Lord also ordained? 
during his earthly ministry, after he ordained the apostles, then he ordained the 70. Well, where'd they go? Well, I think Matthias, one of the ones that was in that upper room, he was qualified to be an apostle. Why? Because he had been with them since the baptism of John. Right? That was one of the qualifications. You, gotta, you have to have been since the baptism of John. Well, the other guy had also been with them since the baptism of John. And I think that most of those other 120, it says that there was also men and women with them. But if you take um, the 11 apostles, and then you add 70 to that, well, now you're up to 81. And then you have, we still got to get 120. So you've got 39 other members that make up men and women and et cetera, et cetera, right? And so I think it's very realistic that the church of Jerusalem was made up of the 70. Because the 70, you consider, well, what, what was the early church? What did it look like during the life of Jesus? Well, when you consider what a church even is, um, it's an assembly. It's a called out assembly. It's a, it's a specific group, right? And this group went with Jesus through his ministry. The purpose of the 70 was to go into the towns ahead of Jesus and announce that he's coming, right? And, um, and he gave them specific instructions. But the 70, so a lot of times in the word of God when it says, and he said unto his disciples, and he teaches a parable or whatever, sometimes it's just the apostles. I think sometimes it would have been the apostles and the 70. It would have been the apostles, the 70, and the women who we see in a lot of instances that there were women with Jesus. And so that's, that was his church. The church was those who were with Jesus, working with Jesus during his earthly ministry. And I think that that is what made up the church as it, as it began. And so I just say that to say, it's, it's only my opinion, but I believe that Philip probably, and the other men who you, see, you might read their name, and think about Stephen. Do you really think that Stephen would have been saved on the day of Pentecost? He, his preaching, his manner of walk, he was a mature Christian. He was not a novice, okay? And so I think Stephen and Philip and all these guys were um, probably some of the preachers and the people who had been with Jesus during his his ministry. Um, I don't have a scripture and verse for that, so. But to me, it makes sense, okay? Um, and so here's Philip. He's in, in verse 5. It says the key thing, he preached Christ. That's always to be the focus. He went out and he preached Christ. And those who believed Philip were baptized in verse 12. Notice this. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And Simon, he believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles which were done. And then uh, um, reports were made back to the sending church, back to the church that Philip was from. He was from Jerusalem. He was an ordained elder in Jerusalem. And reports came back to the church of Jerusalem about what God was doing. And so the sending church sent two representatives to further establish those disciples in the faith and lay hands on them. And if you go down to 17, um, no, let's go back. 
Uh, Verse 14. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent, the church sent to them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet, and notice it's in parentheses, for as yet he was fallen on none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. And so we see though, the main thing I want you to notice in there is that the church heard word and the church sent. And as we begin to go through this series, you will notice when it concerning missions, later in this lesson, I'm going to run out of time here pretty soon, but um, we'll continue it next time. The church sent and the church sent and the church sent. You, that is repeated over and over and over. Um, and so just keep that in mind as we... As we go through this, evangelism spread. It spread to the neighboring villages and towns. Verse twenty-five and forty. Um, and they, when they had testified, and this is Peter, um, and uh, who was that? Who who was sent? Um, they sent Peter and John. And so, in Peter and John, and they, when they had testified and preached the word of word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem. And preach the gospel as they're going down. They preach the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And then, oh, this verse. Uh, <coughs> 40, verse 40. Um, but Philip was found at Azotus and passing through, preached in all the cities till he came uh, to Caesarea. So we see that. These men, as they're going out, the reason I pointed that out is Philip, Peter, and John, when they went out, they took opportunity, and as they traveled, they preached in all the cities. We think, I, I usually think of Philip, he baptized a eunuch, and he was found at Azotus, and then we know later, um, he, he went to Caesarea. But he landed in Azotus, but then he just preached in all the villages, in all the communities, as he made his way to Caesarea. And so they went everywhere preaching the word. Um, it can be assumed that when these people believed in all these other cities, that the same process was used. Believers were baptized. Men from Jerusalem established them into local churches, not leaving them on their own. And so, as I mentioned, many, many by now. The church in Jerusalem was, had been well over 10,000. It had many leaders had deacons and so forth, and I believe many, many men now were authorized to do what we would call missions. Um, everywhere the gospel was preached and where people were saved, churches were started. Right. Churches were planted. It's just the natural process. The scriptural process is in scriptural evangelism, not like Billy Graham, not like so many of these people who have, who, who have gone around and preached and filled stadiums and, and then leave people to themselves, right? Um, but when these people went out, people were discipled, people were baptized. If people were saved in a region, then they sent word and let it be known. These people up here have received our word and have been baptized. Now we need to organize them into churches. We need to further establish them in the faith. It's always about churches and planning churches. And there's all these parachurch organizations and, and extra um, min- ministries that a lot of times start with good intentions, but 
unless the goal and the end result is to see people saved and then see them baptized and then become part of a local body, that's not scriptural mission work. Right. It just right. isn't. There's, yes. it's, it's just not. The end result is always about seeing churches established because those saved souls need a place in which they can yes. grow. They have to be taught. And so um, by the time Saul was saved, we see churches throughout the region. Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. <clears throat> this speaks of Saul has been saved. He's been in Damascus. He's come down to Jerusalem. And uh, it says in Acts 9.31, um, of course, he was the leader. He was the one that had been really persecuting the churches. And just the concluding thought of all that has happened in Saul's life, it says, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. The churches were edified. You don't see people outside the church. You don't see the people outside of a church context. It says, oh, then had the churches rest. It doesn't say then had the saints of God rest. Then had the kingdom of God rest. It said, then had the churches, many local churches, rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and the churches were edified, and the churches were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, and the churches were multiplied. The churches were, it doesn't, it's not talking about, and they were multiplied. So there's just more and more people being saved, and the church was being, multi, was being, was growing. No, the church did grow. The church being made up of all churches, but it says in this passage that the churches were multiplied. Just one church starting another church starting another church and so forth. And how was that happening? Well, that was just meaning that churches multiply when they send somebody out to go start a church. Okay. <coughs> it's that simple. Um, and... We'll stop there. Um, we'll continue. We'll pick up. We might end up going in and looking at another church in, at the end of the next lesson. But um, I want to conclude there because I still have a fair amount to c- cover concerning just the scriptural mission work that we see in the, in the church in Jerusalem. And then we'll also get into how doctrinal, um, they had to deal with some doctrinal issues in the church in Jerusalem and how they worked with and helped other churches, um, and so forth. So that concludes our lesson. Amen.